0: This will be the last week that we're kind of alternating classes with Van and I. I know it's been... I'm sure y'all have had lots of fun jumping back and forth between Jude and 2 Peter, but we'll be wrapping it up and moving on to uh, a new kind of section here relatively soon. Uh, But Van's out for an event this morning, and then I will be out next week for a wedding back in Texas. And after that, we'll probably have something else in store for you guys. I'm not sure exactly how many more weeks he has left to Jude, but... Um, as you noticed when I have been here we have been studying out of Second Peter and again this will be our last week doing so so we're going to wrap up chapter 3 but I know it's been a couple weeks since we've talked about it so I'll just sort of briefly recap here I, want, I know we've been talking about these ideas and these themes for a while so I won't unpack all of it all over again too much but the gist of it the gist of it is that Jude Jude really talks about uh, how the church can protect from false teaching from within, and where Second Peter also talks about that same kind of false teaching. And Second Peter, really, he goes after the false teachers themselves. And we notice this because in the first chapter of the letter, he lays out who he is. Obviously, he is Peter. He is an apostle. He is sent by God. He is working for the sake of God. And he, he makes this comparison sort of at the end of chapter 1 beginning of chapter 2 that the that he speaks in the same lines the prophets did that just as the prophets of old spoke the word of god they who are teaching the teachings of christ now also bring that same word and he talks about really the power of that word the holiness of the word the the importance of correct knowledge of the word and that's why he goes on in chapter 2 to talk about all the problems with false teaching and so some of the things that just that we mentioned and talking specifically about false teaching. Um, he talks about kind of the signs of them. You know, people look at people for their fruits. Good tree bears good fruit bear bad trees bad fruits. So the same thing Jesus taught. Be careful of those who are seeking selfish gain. Uh, he uses this concept of those who promise, uh, promise freedom but are actually entrapping you in a slavery to sin. And in terms of combating false teaching, we'll, we'll get a little bit of this in chapter 3 again. Uh, but he talks about that in chapter 2 as well. Really teach the Word. Teach the Word, know the Word. And if you know the Word, you should be able to teach the Word. And if you're teaching the Word, you're helping other people know the Word. So really, from, from Peter's perspective, that's the easiest and best way to combat false teaching is correct teaching, of course. And so he he, he begins chapter 3. And I think well a few weeks ago, we left off right around verse... Um, Right around verse seven, so we 'll we'll try and cover the rest of the chapter, but just in those first seven or eight verses he he talks about again the the importance of prophecy, not just for correct teaching but but also how it helps us understand who God is, um, and that it should it should really strengthen our faith in God the more we know about him, and he does the same thing in chapter three that he did in chapter two, where he he talks about the apostles having being in that prophetic line, kind of belonging to that same set of teaching as participants in the way in giving the Word of God. Um, and we looked at 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, that, that sort of reminds us that those will come who will prohibit things that are not prohibited by the law, that will place restrictions that are not scriptural, and that's kind of one of the few things Peter talks about off the top of the chapter here as well. And then he uses this illustration of Noah, um, kind of from verse 5 through 7, He uses this illustration essentially from Noah saying that the world was brought out of water and the world was destroyed by water all through the Word of God. And we've we've talked about this a few different times. It's come up in a handful of different classes. Uh, But really he's emphasizing the power inherent in that Word of God. And so he says it is that same Word that we should strive after, that we should strive to have knowledge of, to have understanding of. And there's, there's kind of another another thing hinted in that, uh, that, that analogy of Noah or that reference to Noah. And that is, the, but we really I think where we left off last week was right when we were looking at this. In Genesis 6-5 where it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And essentially it's saying that before Noah, before, at the time of Noah, before the flood, sin was abounding in the earth. And God has essentially, if we can call it that, let that happen. And so Peter is kind of saying the same thing here, that look, just because those false teachers are uh, succeeding just because they exist, just because they're out there, just because they seem to be successful in some of their attacks, do not think that God is not coming. Do not think that God is not involved. Uh, do not believe that God is not faithful. And we'll see that the rest of the chapter really talks about the return of the Lord. And so he says Well we'll have someone read for us verses eight and nine, and we'll tackle those two first. Second Peter chapter three, verse eight and verse nine. So I had us read both those at once. Thank you, by the way. Because we've probably heard verse 8 quoted a lot. I'm sure I've heard people talk about this uh, in in reference to different views on creation. I've heard people talk about this in terms of when God says he is coming soon. You know, what does soon mean? But really, I think what verse 8 means is perfectly explained by verse 9. That he says, The Lord is not slack or slow, as some count slowness, but is long-suffering. And really, the idea of this is that, again, the Lord is not slow, but He... And I love the King James word of long-suffering, because literally it means He suffers long with us. And really, we should appreciate that. Um, his slowness is not Him delaying. It's not Him uh, forgetting <laughs> or being lax. Uh, but it's really evidence. His long-suffering should be evidence of His grace and mercy for us. Because it tells us that He wants all to come to repentance and so really as any parent knows patience and discipline are kind of two hands of uh raising a children are they a child are they not you know you but you have to be patient but you also have to rec that you know the the children have to also recognize that on the other side of that patience is discipline there is not uh patience abounding forever i believe it's in Uh, Romans when Paul says you know, just because of grace should we let sin abound and that's where he says by no means let it not be so Um, just because God is patient does not mean we should go on sinning but actually what Peter is saying is that because the Lord is not slack he is not slow we should know that the Lord remains faithful to us and so we should remain faithful to him now I wanted to look at a couple of the verses that talk about this Uh, someone read for us Matthew 23 Verse forty-three and forty-four.
1: Matthew twenty-three.
0: Verse forty-three
1: and forty-four. I believe so. It only
0: Well, that's good. That's a good start right there. I'll turn to Matthew 23, i if I can find what I'm looking for here. I'll tell you what, there's a couple I wanted to read for us. What's try Isaiah 65, 17? I'll see if I can correct my typo here. 65-17. Isaiah 60. We're gonna look at two references from Isaiah, but the first one is Isaiah 65. <clears throat> Seventeen.
1: Isaiah says, For behold I create new heavens and new earth, and the former shall not be
0: the later or comes to mine. Okay, now flip over and read Isaiah sixty six twenty two, please. So I wanted to look at that, and I wanted to look at, I believe, the destruction of the temple, which would probably be Matthew 24, not 23, but I'll go ahead and read this real quick. This is from Matthew 24, 43, but know this, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the son of man is coming in an hour you do not expect. So flipping back kind of between those and 2nd Peter He goes on and he's about to tell us that, you know, the Lord is not slow because the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Um, going back to 2nd Peter, someone read for us verses 10, 11 and 12, please. Actually, go ahead and throw 13 in there too. 10 through 13 of 2nd Peter 3. So, this is where he really gets to the point of all these things he's been talking about. You know, he's, he's got kind of his practical advice for the church in terms of, hey, be careful. There are false teachers out there who are attacking the church. You yourself strengthen yourself up against these false teachers by, by learning and pursuing knowledge of God and chasing after knowledge of God and growing in knowledge of God. And as he builds to the end here, he starts kind of getting to the so what of the letter, right? So so what is all this, where is all this going? Um, he, he says essentially that the Lord is coming back. How do we know the Lord is coming back? Because he's talked about it since about as long as there has been time, the Lord has talked about the end of time. That's why we read from Isaiah, we read from Matthew, and we read from Second Peter, and we could, I mean, list many, many, many more. But he has been pointing to a time in which... The earth is, you know, the earth is limited. Our our time on earth is limited. All of this will, at some point, pass away. And so because of that, Peter asks, what sort of, I think he says, what sort of persons, what sort of children ought you be? What manner in in holy conduct, in godliness? And what Peter actually says is that we should look for and hasten uh, the coming of the day of the Lord. And he, he's, he mentions kind of three different things in Second Peter about that will happen in this day. He says the heavens will pass away with a roar, the, the elements will be destroyed, and the earth will be destroyed. And in, there, there's kind of this contrast because he was talking about the punishment of sin and, and the earth being flooded with water before. And obviously, not the whole world was destroyed because we know he saved Noah. But he says, you know, there's kind of this contrast that the earth came out of water and he flooded it with water. And that in the end times, he will be destroying it and everything in it with fire. And so that means, we've talked a lot, I think in Colossians, that our faith should give us hope. That, you know, if we really have faith in God, we should have hope in the promises God has given for us. Peter's almost saying, if we have faith, we should also have obedience. We cannot believe in God and not believe that God will someday bring the earth to an end. It doesn't make sense. God's talked about it forever and ever. He's talked about it, and this is what Peter says, he's talked about it through the prophets, he's talked about it through his son, and Peter is bringing that same message now. So if we truly believe in God, we must also believe that he will uh, bring things about one day to an end as he promises. And as a result, that should cause us to live differently. It should cause us to live in accordance with His will, in accordance with His Word. Any thoughts, questions, comments so far before we keep going through 2 Peter 3? We've got one more I want us to look at from Matthew. I know this one's right, but Matthew 6, 19-21. If anyone does not know that off the top of their head, it's a bit of a long one. But if you look at Matthew 6, 19-21...
1: Up for yourselves treasures on earth, there moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where you, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also.
0: Thank you. So, I've used that verse a lot. It's probably one of my favorites. But he's saying, look, if if you really believe that in, in in that context he's kind of talking more about decay, right? That you know things are perishable, things get destroyed. But really, if, if we believe that everything at some point going to be destroyed, it's kind of that old expression, you can't take it with you, right? <clears throat> so how much should we strive to build up for ourselves here things that ultimately will not matter so much as that we should work for that he talks about, where we should build up treasures for ourselves in heaven? And it's really the same thing Peter's talking about that we we ought to conduct ourselves a certain way if we believe in a judgment, kind of keeping with the same idea of that that things will be destroyed. I want to look at another verse Uh James four thirteen James four thirteen and fourteen. So, Peter's really talking about holiness, godliness. You know, Matthew 6, he talks about priorities. We read a few of the older prophets that just talk about the, the new heavens that will be coming or the new earth that will be coming. And James is really talking about, um, you know, don't, kind of in that same line of Matthew 6, the idea of where are your priorities really going to be. How are you really spending your time? Where are you really building up for yourself in this life? Read verse 14 again. I couldn't quite hear you. And I doubt very many people. Yes. Thank you. That's, that's the part I was looking for, that last part. That you here for a brief time and then vanish away. I, I read this in light of Matthew 6 because, again, Peter's going to talk about how if we believe in... God, if we believe his prophets, if we believe those who spoke on behalf of God, we ought to look forward to this day and conduct ourselves righteously until this day. But Matthew 6 and James 4 kind of add to that this idea that we, we just are, our natural human inclination is to focus on whatever's right in front of our face, right? I mean, if, if I'm not hungry, but if you take me to a buffet, I'm going to eat, <laughs> Kind of like they tell you, don't ever go to the gro- don't ever go shopping for groceries hungry, right? You'll want everything in the store. It's just kind of our natural inclination to focus on things right in front of our face sometimes. And here, they're really trying to tell us, the, the, the teachers and Jesus himself, that this is really not that important. And, and truthfully, and I think this is probably more true for us even than it was for them, but society will spend all of its time trying to tell us it's important. And I get that there's things we care about, there's things we like, that's fine. I'm not saying don't love anything. Don't enjoy it while we're here. But remember, I mean, that the, the classic hymn, right? This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And I've heard really good lessons on that that kind of focus on this idea of, you know, if this world is not our home, why are we making ourselves so comfortable here? <laughs> you know, when, when, you, when you're a guest at somebody's house, uh, it kind of depends. I don't know what you guys. When I invite guests, the first thing I tell them is make themselves at home. So this is a terrible analogy. But if you're at a guest's house, you know, you don't just kick off your shoes and run running through their pantry and their fridge and stocking up for yourself something for dinner and making yourself some tea or something. They might do that. They might ask you to just, you know, no, just kind of chill here. You don't need to go to that part of the house or you just... But we kind of make ourselves home here and the more we do what he said about storing up treasures for ourselves and the more we... The end of that section literally says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I think that cuts two ways, in the sense that if if we are spending our time doing and amassing and focusing ourselves on earthly things, of course we're going to care about earthly things, because we're going to feel like we've we've amassed so much and done so much for ourselves. But I think the same thing can happen where when we spend time working with our spiritual family, we spend time serving the Lord, we spend time reading, we spend time in prayer... We're going to find ourselves dwelling more on those things too. Um, when I talk to some of my buddies who live out in uh, back home in Texas or in the Dallas area that are ministers, something that's really hard uh, for me to explain to them is the ownership that a lot of the small country churches feel on like the building in this physical church here. And it's kind of different in, in Alabama, Tennessee, Mississippi. When, when people are part of an old country church, when you've got, like, my dad went here and my granddad went here. My, like, you've got people who, they wouldn't say it, but they kind of think that building is pretty darn holy. Like, that's, they ain't going anywhere else. They're never going to go to another. And, and we kind of joked, like, I, I wish sometimes we didn't quite think about it like that. But I say that because we really do want that sense of ownership, not necessarily about the physical building. But, but about the congregation in the sense of the spiritual family that we're working on, that we're building up, that we're putting effort into. And so if I can kind of combine what, what Matthew 6 and James 4 and Second Peter 3 is all saying, if we believe, if we really believe, and we're not just saying it, but if we really believe that with righteous fire or what have you, everything is going to be destroyed at some point, then it really shouldn't matter as much as the things that God tells us matters. It just really shouldn't be that important. And I know that's really hard because, again, when you, when you spend time working towards something and striving for something, and you put your effort and your blood, sweat, and tears into something, that is going to be important to you. And I understand that for as long as we live on this earth, there is a natural amount of blood, sweat, and tears we've got to put into just being alive and feeding ourselves. Don't get me wrong. I, I get that. But don't forget that this will pass away because this world is not our home. <laughs>
1: <laughs> me, Christianity is going out of the country and, and I mean and truly, you know, spread the gospel and bring other people to Christ on like that you know, you can't
0: sit back and you you know, what you do and what you've to step out. Yeah, there, there was another from a, a really successful in terms of like missions and evangelism, a church down in Florence, and one of the things he told us, and this was kind of a room full of ministers, but I think it applies to Christians as well, as you're saying, is he said, get comfortable having uncomfortable conversations. And he was talking about a whole bevy of things, because he said, look, you're, you're good at it. If you're going to be in this position, whether it's dealing with people who are grieving, people who are experiencing loss, people who are erring and not really want to listen to what you're telling them about how to get their life back together, the same thing goes for all of those things and, as you said, spreading the gospel or just what we've been talking about, the sense of even not necessarily like the, the door-knocking missional idea of spreading the gospel, but how about just like the living aspect of the gospel where if you're in a room full of people who all care about one thing, like I love football so this won't resonate with me, but I know some of you are not sports fans, there's got to be nothing worse than being in a house full of people who care about a game that you do not care about. Like I can't imagine being in those shoes because I'm a very casual sports fan. If it's a good game, I'll watch it. You know? I'll get sucked into it. I always joke with people, if we got to have a serious conversation, I can't be in the room with the TV because I'm going to look at it. I'm sorry. got ADD. It's just not good. But there's got to be nothing worse than being in a house full of people who are just sucked into this basketball or football game and you really couldn't care how it goes, right? In a sense, that's almost how we're called to live our entire lives. Like The rest of the world is out there who are just like, yes, the house and the car and the job and the success and, and it's not always material things. Sometimes it's just other stuff, you know. I'm not always trying to paint it as evil or necessarily malicious, but it's just, they're distractions. And so sometimes we've got to be that, in that uncomfortable position of being the only person in the house that does not care about what's going on. And not only do we got to say we don't care, when we talk about really living out the gospel, we, we kind of have to say, hey, turn it off. And if you think being in a room full of people who care about a game that you don't care about is uncomfortable, go try and turn the TV off and you're going to feel real uncomfortable, right? But that's kind of what we're doing. We're really bringing a message that is counter to, to not just what they tried to tell us but how the world will try to live their lives. And My point to bring that up is, you know, it really should not be our goal to make
1: us comfortable in this world. To worry
0: yes. about Absolutely. I, uh, I know we're kind of talking big picture, if I could kind of zoom back in on it. I was having a conversation with somebody the other day, about just how they grew up, and they said they, it took them a long time to realize their parents had spoiled them, just because it was the classic. Their parents didn't have very much, so they tried to give them everything, and so now their and their siblings' priorities were kind of out of whack for a little part of their adulthood. And we were talking about it, and my thought is, you know, as a parent... What kind of comfortability do you really want them to have? You know, Is your goal for them to never want for anything in this world? Or is your goal for them to be as secure as possible in the next? And I'm not necessarily saying you can't do both. I'm not trying to say that. But we know as parents our natural in- inclination to just, you want to take care of your kids. You want to support them. You want them to do well. You don't want that. You know they're going to have to struggle, but you don't want them to have to struggle. Some of you look at me like, you are crazy. I have adult kids. They need more struggles in their life. But, <laughs> Mine's still 11 months old, and I just want to think about, like, him getting an F on a test or something at some point. I'm just like, no, or falling down, or getting in a car accident or something like that. I'm just like, oh, I can't ever imagine that happening, because you want the best for him all the time. And it's easy to think about that in this physical, earthly context, because that's almost comfortable. We really need to have that same push and yearning for our children, for our spiritual family, for those who are outside of this. I mean – really really seeing that's what's important not this and, and again I know I know there is an element of you know you, you, you want to put a roof over your kids heads and you want to know where their next meal is going to come from I'm not saying we all need to go starve and be homeless or else we're not obeying the Lord but don't don't get too comfortable might be the, the way to put it you know we, I, I get we got to live and breathe and we want food and water Alright, that's that's totally fine.
1: You would learn to be content. <clears throat> so if you're poor be content, if you're rich be content, someone in the middle be content. If you're down and out, be content. That's true. So whatever state you're in, be content.
0: I love that I think it's he used he, he says that idea a couple I'm sorry. Are you talking about before sort of the ends of Philippians?
1: Yeah, four
0: and Richer or poorer and better or worse. What I love about Paul when he's talking about that, go read Acts and tell me where Paul is rich. Go <laughs> tell me what better looked like in Paul's life. Like He, he says better, poor, rich, and he, he really I think the goal is what you're saying, that he's always content. But it's always kind of funny because when we think of better for worse and highs and lows, man, the highs in Paul's life were like the time he wasn't getting ran out of town like the the, the night that he got to sleep at night instead of being woken up and stoned and chased out for the sake of the gospel. Like he was never really just sitting high and mighty eating grapes and drinking wine all day, you know. Even rich to him was like, the times that I'm not being actively, physically persecuted, those are nice. And uh, yeah, you want to read something that will kind of shake up your priorities, do a a deep study of Acts and see the kind of things that they took joy versus suffering in. Um, but yeah that, I mean being content being really understanding some of those other lessons that we've talked about about being joyful in all things what, what that really means I mean, I mean you've got to like everything the Lord throws at you but again if you know that this is temporary it's okay so we ought to live differently is the gist of what we've been all saying here And we are, let's go ahead and read verse 14 through 16. Kind of excited. We only got a few verses left and I got about 12 minutes. This is good. section here because in the second he talks about growing in grace and knowledge and I notice as we start to wrap up the letter that he starts talking about all those same ideas he said in the beginning he kind of I think the old school thing, they told us in one of my first speech classes or whatever, but they said, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, tell them what you told them, and that, that's your structural <laughs> thing, you know, stand up, stand up, speak up, shut up, I think was the other thing they kind of joked as it with. And you notice Peter kind of does that. In the very first chapter, the first opening lines, he says, he kind of lays out what he's going to talk about, he gets into it, and as he's wrapping up the letter, he kind of reminds them, be diligent, look forward to these things, remember that the Lord's patience is through salvation. It is only through the Lord's patience that we have salvation. And we've talked about this idea before too. And I don't get want to get into into this too much because we understand what the Bible teaches about repentance, about baptism, and about full obedience. But understand that like, we would not have access to any of that if the Lord was not first gracious to us. And, and so that's why so many of these letters, when they talk about uh, the patience of the Lord and they go back to this idea of grace and forgiveness and uh, we'll kind of see where he's going with that in verse 17 and 18. But right now in 16, he says, he mentions Paul in Paul's letters, which I think is super interesting. And he says, in which there are some things who are hard to understand, the church said, amen, uh, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction. So we've talked about this a little bit when we were kind of looking at false teachers in chapter 2 and some of the themes that run currents through the whole letter. But I love that he says, be aware that some people will twist the Scriptures. So if I, if I know that some people can misuse them or twist them to their own destruction, what is the best way for me to combat that? know the scriptures I mean he's, he's really got just one or two points in the whole letter <laughs> you know he, he pronounces judgment on false teachers and he absolutely I, I can almost imagine the steam coming out of his ears when he's writing some of chapter 2 talking about all the things the Lord will punish those who are teaching falsely but his instructions for the church are pretty simple and they come over and over back to that something we've I think I've kind of talked about this before maybe like a Sunday night I, I get I totally get believe it or not That studying your Bible, and I just say, sit down and read Isaiah. Not the easiest thing in the world. (laughs) Sit down and read through 2 Corinthians. Not the easiest thing in the world. But as you do it, and anybody who's ever, whether it's learned a new instrument or learned some kind of new skill, understands what I'm talking about in terms of a learning curve, there's something that starts happening when you really start spending time with God and you start able to kind of push pull the pieces together and start kind of making those connections. And what you'll find is when somebody quotes something or somebody says something that's out of context, or they, use, or they kind of use one in a way that just doesn't make sense, you'll start noticing that. Almost like a, if I can almost compare it to a, a veteran, either whether you're in construction or you're in plumbing or you're an electrician, you can get on a job site and if they're telling you you're having a problem, you can already kind of look at something like, something's not right here. I don't, I don't know 100% what's wrong yet, but something, this does not look good. This is not the way this should look. I'm not even into it yet, but I'm kind of like this. Uh, I'm seeing something is off. In the same way that the more we spend time with the Word of God, we will be able to recognize when people are misleading us. And I'll tell you, when, when you start really digging into it, it's like a, it is seriously like a red light going off in the back of your head. Because I've, I've been through phases of my life where I was kind of church hopping and shopping, I guess I think is what they call it. And sometimes you sit down, they're talking about stuff, and it's like, oh, I was with you a second ago. I don't know where this is going anymore. <laughs> I'm not sure where you're going with it. I'm not sure if that's really what that says. And we think, we talk all the time about the Bereans where he said, you know, they went and studied for themselves the scriptures in Acts 7, 17, I believe, is when he talks about that. But he warns us that people will twist them. They will... Uh, and he even says they are untaught and unstable which is interesting that not only do they not know enough but that they themselves are, are not reliable not trustworthy not faithful people and he says they twist it to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures so like with anything that's
1: not talking about family, it's church it's talking about the outside world
0: absolutely the that are and <clears throat> well it's, it's really what he was you're, have <coughs> Right. That's true. That that's really true. And you bring up a good point. We talked about this a lot a couple weeks ago. When we're reading Second Peter, at least when he's talking about those who would twist them and those who would miss, this is not really just speaking about like casual disagreements. And you were, you said this is not. He's not really talking about just in the church, but he's really talking about those outside the church. And that's super evident if you go back to the beginning of chapter two, really from about verses one through ten, where he talks about all of the motivations that people outside have and when he talks about those who are self-seeking, those who are just serving to build a name for themselves, who are just trying to bring wealth on themselves, who are who are just trying to serve themselves, this is not just sort of the casual, I would almost say normal expected disagreements that we know we will have with a body of individuals. Right, you Get a group big enough together, you're going to have a disagreement somewhere. Um, but really those outside who are whose goal is to destroy the church, is really what he's saying in chapter 2. And here he says they twist it to their own destruction, obviously talking about the end of days of judgment, as they do the rest of the Scriptures. So he begins and ends kind of with these ideas of being mindful of judgment day, about knowing that the Lord is coming back. There's a... There was one more I had wanted to read. We didn't for the sake of time, but it's, it's kind of right in line with Matthew 6 and Matthew 24 that we did read. And it's Mark 13. And in Mark 13, 35, Jesus gives the analogy of like the disciples and the church as sort of the watchmen of a house. And he says, Be ready at any hour, because you do not know when the master will return. And verse 36 says, Keep watch, lest he arrive and find you sleeping. And I wanted to kind of give a little bit of a... Quick anecdotes, again, I know we're getting close here, but when I was in uh, a, a mechanic for a little while, I was working at Cummins, and we were like, in this massive 40-bay warehouse, and for whatever reason, things got super slow, and they started shipping some of us off to Parks Department. Long story short, there's a lot on my mind. I was sitting on the shelf of Parks Department one morning, and I was kind of resting my eyes in a chair. I wasn't fully asleep, but I was kind of leaning back, because Parks Department's much slower than working on cars. It's much more boring, and it's not that interesting, just to be honest with you. And lo and behold, this is the day that my boss's boss, not even my boss, not the guy I talk to who knows me, who likes me, who I have a good repertoire with, my boss's boss decides to walk to the parts department. And didn't even really like, look at me or see mine, just kind of did that number right there. And looked about like a comic book. But I can't tell you like what an idiot I felt like. Like shame... Stupidity, all those things. There was a lot going on at the time. I wasn't sleeping well. There was a lot of lot of things going on in my headspace, and I really had just like sat down for a second. And of course, of course, of course, that's when he walks by. When Jesus talks about these things in Mark and in Matthew, and he talks about the watchman of the house returning. When I think of that, I also think of the disciples in the garden. When the disciples are in the garden, this is Matthew twenty-six from about 36 to uh, verse 40, 41. <clears throat> Jesus is praying. And it says he's, he's of great sorrow and he's, he, he says he knows that there's, he, he's, the, the cup is almost too much for him. He says, if possible, let it pass for me because he says he doesn't know if he can bear it. And twice, two or three times, he comes back to the garden and he finds the disciples sleeping. And part of me wonders if the disciples would have found a way to not be tired if they knew how that night was going to end. Because I think they kind of thought, well, Jesus is always dealing with a lot. He seems like an important guy. He's got a lot on his mind, right? They were, they were on the boat going across the sea and he fell asleep. They're like, you know, Jesus, he needs some time on his own. He's praying. Um, we'll probably be all right here for a second. <laughs> and Jesus says, could you... Could you not stay awake with me one hour? Someone go to read for us. I'm, I know I'm quoting this probably incorrectly at times. Someone read Matthew 26, verse 40 and 41 for us, please. Matthew 26. It's good to look at the whole section, but just uh, verse 40 and 41. And he came to the disciples, <coughs> and, he came to the disciples in the and
1: said, What?
0: So that's what I really wanted to kind of end with as we work toward the end of the letter. He said, could you not watch with me one hour? And again, I think of that, of course, that one time I was sleeping is when the head of our shop decided to come by and find me. And of course, it's at Jesus' lowest, worst hour that he comes back from the garden and his disciples are falling asleep. And in Luke, I think it says that he was sweating sweat drops of blood. And his inner, like these aren't even the other nine. These are the inner circle guys. These are the three guys who were at everything who've been through him from the beginning. And he says they're asleep. And I just, I wonder if they would have found a way to not be tired if they knew how that night was going to end. If they knew that was their last night with Jesus. If they knew He was going to be crucified. If they knew He was going to be leaving them. But I think they had really gotten comfortable. They had kind of gotten used probably to their status or their association with Jesus. They had gotten used to being around Him, to Him being with them, to Him always dwelling with them. And I think in the same way, I'm sure there will be people... After Judgment Day, well not really after, I guess maybe during or as it happens, what have you, there would be people who would have thought, well, I would have, I would have done differently if I knew it was going to be today. I would have, I would have maybe done a little bit if I knew it was going to be this week, if I knew it was going to be this month, if I knew it was going to be this year, I would have, I would have done things differently, I would have changed. It's kind of the old um, the Christmas story, the ghost and everything, where he says, well, I, if I had known that was going to happen, surely I would have acted differently. And Peter's message is pretty much, act differently now. You should know it's going to happen. He tells us it's going to happen. Just because we haven't yet, I'll read the last two verses of Second Peter chapter 3, and we'll open it up for some comments. From verse 17, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. I know we've got just a couple minutes, so if there's any thoughts or questions or comments on what we covered in chapter 3. I'll throw in there with his last verse on where he says, but grow in grace and knowledge. I don't think that's just a stock phrase. I don't think this is just a sort of formatic ending. But I think he's really getting at kind of the same thing that John, the, the way that John 8 ends in verses 7 through 9, that to grow and mature spiritually is to understand the role that grace and forgiveness plays in your life. And I think he's, as the older we are or the more mature we become spiritually, to grow in knowledge is to grow in grace of God because I think another thing that happens in the same way that we get built up against false teaching the more we study the word and the more we seek to understand God the more we will see what he has done for us the more we will see how gracious with us he is how merciful with us he has been and really just the role that uh, forgiveness plays in the journey any of us have any other comments questions on anything we talked about All right.